when I dropped them off, I never looked back. I had every intention of it, but my thinking was, oh, but I can party now, uninhibited. Mm. <laughs> Two days turned into three, and three turned into four, and I was like, okay, I'll go like by the end of the week, and, and then the shame kicked in. And I was like, now I've f***ed up so much, I can't go back. Mm-hmm. And basically, I put myself on the run and abandoned my children. That f- made me face punch into my crack addiction significantly. He probably had no idea yeah. what he was doing. Yeah, and you know, I started getting it after work and on paydays and this and that, and I was doing it at night and uh, you know, smoking crack and doing these things that I shouldn't be doing. I had my babies, I had a job, and I was in a position where I wasn't able to care for my children correctly. Um, and I was really struggling, uh, and, um, it was impacting my children and Delico became involved and I made a lot of really bad parenting choices. Uh, the only good parenting choice was that I willingly chose to put my kids, uh, at my parents' house for the weekend. Delico's like, you should probably clean up this disaster take a break, take your kids to your parents' house for the weekend. When I dropped them off, I never looked back. I had every intention of it, but my thinking was, oh, I can party now, uninhibited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two days turned into three, and three turned into four, and I was like, okay, I'll go like by the end of the week. And, and then the shame kicked in, and I was like, now I've fucked up so much, I can't go back. Mm-hmm. And basically, I put myself on the run and abandoned my children. That f- made me face punch into my crack addiction significantly. Uh, I had no responsibilities at this point. You know, I had uh, walked away from my job months before. You know, I ended up uh, like running out of my apartment, basically. I didn't want to be anywhere near my apartment because it was close to my parents' house. And I was like, they're going to find me. But the reality was, is that nobody was looking for me. <laughs> Once I ran out of money, I was like, well, now I got to like, how am I going to hustle? That's when I started driving drug dealers and gang members from the airport and, you know, helping them run traps and do grocery runs and go get their fucking tobacco, whatever they're called, backwoods. And, yeah, yeah. you know, they're, f- they're freaking McDonald's and all these things. And they were piecing me off and stuff. And, um, you know, I think the cops got tired of taking my car away from me. <laughs> I was driving dirty. I was riding dirty. I had no license, oh, no. no insurance, no nothing. Yeah. Dry- my car got stolen more times than not <laughs> oh, <my laughs> from God. me, from people in the game. Uh, you know, I got to a point where, you know, I lost my car. I had, you know, didn't have my kids, didn't have my apartment, didn't have anything. And I was like, okay, how am I going to continue to feed my addiction? And I thought about like what my life was like when I was involved in sex work. And I was like, I don't want to do that here. (laughs) I don't want to be any part of that lifestyle here in Thunder Bay. So I was like, I'm going to be a criminal. And... (laughs) You know, I laugh now because it's, to me, it's like absolutely comical. And, uh, in my crime spree started very like, um, like low level. I was like stealing shit out of, out of like garages and like stealing tools and stupid stuff like that. And shoplifting at Metro and <laughs> shoplifting at stores. And how would you convert these things? Well, I guess if you're stealing out of garages, bikes and stuff, you can convert that to cash, but 
to steal out of Metro. I'm thinking how you, you would could... be surprised how many people buy food yeah. at discount. Interesting. <laughs> like stealing steaks and stuff and, and uh, like stuff from shoppers and like, you know, all that stuff. Like I would have like big bags of that stuff and I'd go around and hustle it off for like next to nothing. Cause I just wanted to get high. And, and then I, one day an opportunity struck and I did my first B and E that was like, Oh, this is good. You know, I realized that it was like one stop shopping for me. I could get to change clothes, get food, get whatever, um, electronics and jewelry and money and cigarettes and whatever booze. And I really believed that I was solid. And, and my thinking around that was, is that I seen all these girls that were, um, bag chasing, we call them bag chasers. And, uh, they were chasing the bag and stuff and ripping off drug dealers. And I was like, that's stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, I don't want to die. <laughs> right. I'm like, I don't want to, you know, and I think probably my past experiences with some of the people that I dealt with, like you just, it was something that was ingrained. You just don't fuck with those people. And, um, so I didn't want to participate in that. I seen girls getting hurt for that kind of stuff and you know, get their heads shaved and whatever else was happening to them. And I just, it was something I was like, I'm going to be solid. I'm not going to rip off my own people because it was my community. Mm-hmm. I had fully embraced the, everybody as these were my people. And that I had a, um, a delusional mentality of we should all row together. We would get so much farther if we worked together. And my thinking was that I was being solid because I wasn't ripping off my own people. It took me a long time in recovery to realize that I was victimizing completely innocent people. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the impact of my crimes uh, devastated communities, devastated families, uh, you know, and I I recognize now the ripple effect um, that uh, my quick, you know, hit, would, you know, has had, um, there are people that will never recover from me taking from them. Mm-hmm. My kids will at some point be aware of my crimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my parents have had to carry the fact that their daughter has been a publicized criminal. Um, you know, so the impacts have been significant, but in that moment under the use of substances, um, I really was so removed from my, like, I really believe that it was like crack had desensitized myself from my soul self. I had just been moved so far away from my core values, um, my integrity as a human being. Um, and I wasn't even aware, like I really believed I was hurting nobody. That's not an excuse. It's just the reality of the situation for me. Um, so I basically, uh, continued on, um, you know, committing crimes of that nature. And my thinking was, is I will stop when the police catch me. <laughs> wow. Uh, that was my, <laughs> and like how delusional I was. I had no clue that I could pick up a phone and be like, hey man, I have a problem with drugs. Do you think maybe I can come to detox? Detox wasn't even on my radar. Mm-hmm. Um, reaching out to my family was not an option. Um, and my plan of recovery was I will continue to commit crimes until the police catch me. They were my recovery plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, they fully were willing to participate in that narrative <laughs> and, uh, they chased me all through the streets and down hills and around corners. And, um, I, uh, I can give you, I'll give you a funny example. Um, I have to be mindful of what I talk about and stuff, but, um, why, this was a little bit like I, cause I, I would break into houses, but I'd also break into sheds and stuff like that and stupid things like that. One time I took a half an hour 
trying to like jimmy open this fucking shed because I was like, I'll go in there and get some tools. And I like crawled through the fucking window, fell, landed on my back and looked over and the fucking side door was open. Oh, <laughs> like, so I wasn't like some like criminal mastermind. I was, you know, I was not operating with a full deck of cards that's on some days. And I remember like thinking that, oh, this is like one stop shopping. And I would be terrified. I would be anytime I committed a crime, I was like, like had like the adrenaline rush and scared, but I knew that if I did this, I could get high and, um, and, uh, you know, and, and that's what I did. And, um, you know, I was always scoping places out. I was like literally lurking all over the city, um, and causing havoc everywhere I went. And, um, I can tell you a funny story about one of my interrogations. The first time I got arrested, I was involved in, um, a home takeover, uh, actively in the process with gang members um, down on Pearl Street a number of years ago. What's a home takeover? So basically, they were attempting to take it over. There was gang members that were um, basically trying to uh, hurt one of my uh, one of the people that I associated with for whatever reasons. And um, there was four or five armed gang members on that one side of the door. And we were all trapped in the... Um, we're all trapped in the trap house together. Uh, and, um, they like had broke through the window and they were pointing guns at us and they were like, uh, shoot these fucking crackheads. And I remember hiding like behind a fridge. Um, and I thought I was going to die. And my friend who was thought she was going to die, uh, was just piecing out people, drugs. <laughs> we're just getting high. <laughs> um, and then the cops pulled up and everybody, everybody flew and took off running, and I was like, "I'm wanted. Let me out of here." And uh, I went down a side, like a side of the house, and an officer grabbed me, uh, like he grabbed me by my collar. Um, and uh, as I was running down, I was like throwing crowbars and you know, and screwdrivers and stuff because I carried all this stupid shit on me. And uh, basically, he ran my name there. And at this point, the cops were the cops were flooding the neighborhood because it was like a big, like a th big thing that was happening. And they ran my name, and I had a. Um, I had a bench warrant for a DUI and they threw me in the back. At this point, I had already committed a significant amount of crimes. I didn't think I was getting out. Um, so I smoked crack in the cop car. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I was shaking. I did it shakingly and I was like this and the cops were so like busy chasing people all over the place. There was probably 27 squad cars there. Like this was a big deal. Uh, and, um, and they basically took me to the police station. I only had, I thought I was going away forever. I mean, I had no concept of, um, like criminal, like what charges would get me wide and things like that. I just knew that if they had any clue, I wasn't, I was going to prison. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, they ended up letting me go. <laughs> I was what? like, oh, yeah, because they only had me on the bench warrant. They hadn't put anything together yet. Right. Um, a couple of weeks later, I got arrested again. And, uh, and at this point they had figured it out and I tell you, um, they had figured it out in the, um, this lovely, uh, officer. <laughs> I laughed because, um, I, I've run into him since. And, uh, he sat me down at the little interrogation table and he's like, we know you've been quite active. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, we have some like uh, footage and we have some pictures we want you to look at. And he slid this picture of this individual across the table and they had like a big fur jacket on and like a scarf wrapped around their head and sunglasses. And they're like, do you know who this is? And I'm like, no. 
they're like, are you sure? And I'm like, I have never seen that person before in my life. And, and the detective looked at me and he's like, are you sure? Like not even in a fucking mirror. You don't know who this is. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah and I, it's just one of those things that just reminds me of like how ludicrous and out of unmanageable my life had become, mm-hmm. you know, I've been like sitting across from a detective and he's like, are you sure this isn't you? <laughs> and clearly it looked like somebody that I was related to, Yeah, <laughs> you know? And, uh, that was, that was the life I had chose. And, um, you know, as ended up going, um, into, uh, into custody for the first time, I remember like being initially nervous when they, they transported me to the, the Thunder Bay Correctional Center. And I went in and I was like terrified. I'd never been to jail before, but I was going to be strong. Mm-hmm. And I went through and I knew everybody. No <laughs> way. Like, eh, okay. So this isn't too bad. And, um, you know, and that was when I started like wanting to get back on track again. And I was like, you know, starting to like figure out how can I fix my life? Um, mm-hmm. and I had really great intentions. Like jail um, was good for you? Yeah. Because it took me away from my substance so I could start to think clearly. Um, and I was like, I wanted, I knew instinctively I want to get my kids back and I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I knew I had to start working towards that goal. Um, so I had really great intentions and basically what happened is, um, I was lucky enough to get out on bail and I was supposed to go to crossroads and I got on the bus and I went right to the bank and then I went right to the shoreline, um, which was this really notorious hotel that's no, it's under, under new ownership. It's no longer a massive four and a half story trap house, but basically I wasn't able to like, even with my, the desires I wanted to be with my kids, uh, to reconnect, um, and to pull away the addiction just took over. I hadn't done any work. I was just removed from it. And the one barrier, the bars were removed from me. I was out there for about six weeks, uh, ended up committing more crimes, a significant amount uh, of crimes. And, um, they rearrested me. Um, and, uh, I knew I was never getting out. I thought I was going to the pen, Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. And, um, I ended up being sentenced. I had 36 charges and I pled guilty to, to 16 of them. They sentenced me to one year. Um, then they requested DNA and I knew that when I gave my DNA that I was going to hit more, more break and enter charges. And I did. And I got an additional, I got an additional three more concurrent sentences of six months consecutively to my first sentence. So that added another four months. And then with the time I served in, I ended up doing as a first time offender, 14 and a half months, uh, first time, like really going to jail. My goal was, I I was lucky enough, um, in custody. I was like, okay, I'm going to fucking fix my life. And, um, I was able to go to the ARTC program in the Sault Ste. Marie and, uh, and do their, uh, they have an in custody treatment program. And that's when I really started pulling everything apart. Um, I had an opportunity to really self-reflect in jail, uh, in a way that I never had in my ever before. And I had to be like, start thinking about like, why was I choosing drugs? Why was I choosing substances to dull my pain? And, and what can I do to move forward? And I always instinctively knew that I, I wanted a life more than addiction. I just didn't know how to like maintain that. I did my sentence and, um, I was released again to crossroads. 
<laughs> and uh, did you make it there? I made it there. They All put right. me in a cab this time, <laughs> and I had to self isolate because it was during the time of COVID. And uh, I self isolated for two weeks. And I remember being in the room, and the window was like right beside my bed, and the people on the other side were free, and I was technically free, but I wasn't allowed to leave that room. Mm-hmm. That was really hard for me. Uh, it was really hard to to not be able to to go out into the world when I had served so much time. And the first thing I did is when I got there, I ordered um, a pizza and it was, uh, <laughs> it was a butter, butter chicken pizza from, I believe Boston. Uh, I think it was Boston pizza or Domino's or something. And it was so good. Mm-hmm. I did really well. Um, I strived for excellence in my recovery. Uh, and I was like, I'm never going to use again. Uh, I went to treatment at the Grant house in uh, Toronto for three months. I loved it. It was a really eye-opening program for me. And then I got accepted into university. Oh, hey. Yeah, uh, for the social work program. Um, and uh, I was super excited about that. I came back and I was preparing for moving into my own place. I actually did end up renting a room in like a student house. Um, the whole issue for me was um, I was dating somebody that I, we're not supposed to date when you're in the program at Crossroads, but we did anyway. We call them CR romances. I moved out of Crossroads and um, the situation unfolded very quickly. We ended up breaking up like kind of on the spot. He left me like at the, mo- at the Kingsway Motel. He left me there with my luggage and uh, and I walked down the street to the trap house and I picked up Oh man! and, uh, and it was basically fueled by heartache. And within five days I was behind bars again. Good Lord. Like it was so quick. And I remember the police were like chasing me down the hill. Um, and so I can't talk about that. I, I broke into a home not far from here. A neighbor had called, um, 911 because there was a rock burglary and process or whatever. And the the cops knew my name and it was like, I don't know who it was, but he was like, Alicia. And I was like, I don't know who the fuck that is. And I was like running down the hill and stuff. And basically they ended up tackling me the next day at the pawn shop again. And that was supposed to be my first day of university. Good grief. Yeah. So that was like a really heavily impactful moment for me here. I had worked so hard to um, better myself, be a good parent, I wanted to, you know, reunite with my children and I had let my heart rule my mind and I had, um, you know, let the pain, um, choose my decision, make my decisions for me. And, um, you know, and in a moment that should have been like a very like celebratory day for me was like the lowest day ever. Um, I remember being in, the cop car and just being like, wow, I put myself here. Um, and I knew the weight of my actions, um, were unlike the weight of any other actions I had taken before because I had been doing well. It wasn't like I had fucked up, made Mm -hmm. mistakes, um, was stumbling. I had fucked up, made mistakes, found recovery, then stumbled. Yeah. Um, and it really weighed on me and I was in custody and I, and I was like for three weeks, it took about three weeks for my thinking to change. I really believe my life was over. I believe that there was no way that I was going to ever see my kids again. I believe that I was going to the pen for sure. Um, I just didn't see any hope. Uh, and I also was self-reflecting and like, wow, I'm like, they're like, I'm like, how did I get here? Me? I put myself here. My choices, it doesn't matter what happened to me in my childhood. 
It doesn't matter what happened in my teenagers. It doesn't matter how I feel about my family or things like that. At the end of the day, yes, that's the foundation for my addiction, but I'm choosing to cope with something that is um, more impactful than the trauma. So I started looking at myself and I had to take accountability for my part in my own downfall. And there was no more blaming anybody else. I was very, very lucky that after about three weeks, I was like, okay, so shit's fucked up. How can I make the most out of a difficult situation? Be accountable to myself. Is there any way, if there's a way to come back from this, am I, do I have what it takes to accomplish that? Um, and I ended up reaching out to the, uh, my lawyer and asking for a referral to the John Howard society. And I was lucky that they took me. Mm -hmm. I was like, holy shit, they're going to let me out. (laughs) And I got bail and after I was about two months of being in custody, uh, and I went there and I knew that instinctively knew that if I mucked this up, there was no coming back. Uh, I knew that I was on my very last leg, uh, for success with my kids specifically, which was always been my, uh, my major concern. So, um, the hardest day for me, uh, post that release was the next day that I got out, a girl across the hall from me offered me crack cocaine. Uh, she invited me to her room and said, Hey, I got something for you. And, and I went and she handed the pipe, to, like put the pipe up to me and said, here, this is for you. And it was like somebody was holding a gun to my head. Uh, and I knew instinctively that if I touched that, there was no going back. And um, I knew my whole future was loaded in that pipe. Uh, and I knew that uh, that decision would would carry me through the rest of my life. And I ran. Um, I ran from that room so fast and I, I, I ended up in my room across the hall shaking for like eight hours, uncontrollably sweating um, because I knew that somebody was using a cross for me. That ended up being my biggest fear. It was like, do I have what it takes to say no in the face of it? Uh, and that was always what I worried about the most with my relapse prevention programs and plans. And, um, you know, and after, after that day, you know, the, the girl the next day or the couple of days later was removed from the program for a multitude of reasons, I guess. But, um, um, that was the first day that I knew that maybe I had a chance. Um, after that, I, I think it was like a week or two later, I was, I started planning on like, how can I move forward as quickly as possible, uh, to get to a point where I need to be to, to provide a safe, loving home to my children. And I was like, I need employment. I need to have financial, uh, financial situation that can support me and my goals. And, um, basically I scratched together a resume and dropped it off at the shelter house and they called me. Unreal. I was like, and I went for the interview and I was like, they're going to hire me. <laughs> and, uh, I lied my face off. Um, it was great. And <laughs> in, in my mind, I thought I was like, getting pulling of uh, like the wool over their eyes or something. And, um, I remember like they, uh, told me to like come for the training shifts. And, uh, one of the training shifts was, was on overnights and I wasn't allowed to be out of the John Howard society. Uh-oh. So I was like, Oh my God, I have to go and like self advocate here. And, uh, and I was like, if I don't do this, I can't have this job. And I remember the manager, um, her name's Michelle at shelter. I was like, you know, if you need a letter, Alicia, like I could just write you a letter. And I was like, no, no, 
it's fine. They're, and then when I was doing the paperwork for the job, they're like, where do you live? And I'm like, 316 syndicate. It was like, um, John Howard was like 315 or something. I was so worried about the perceptions of being a, a criminal, mm-hmm. of being an addict, of living at John Howard. I knew how significant of a barrier it was going to be for me to be successful. So I was like trying to hide it. And it was super, super... Um, impactful to me. I always felt like I was on the verge of discovery. And the reality is they were well aware of where I was. And, um, but I didn't know that, uh, I was, um, I did really well. And I also was able to uh, secure employment at pace, which is uh, an organization. It's a day shelter. It's people advocating for change through empowerment. And they hired me, they knew all about my past and it was very like freeing. And I realized something in that moment that trying to hide the addiction, which is something I had tried to do before, didn't bring me any success. And it had me living in this like fear-based world all the time where like the next person, you know, finds out and I'm like, you know, I'm like, maybe I just need to be honest about who and what I am. And Pace kind of showed me that. And um, I did really well at Pace. I worked the, um, basically the door position, monitoring people's uh, coming and goings there. And then I was really lucky the Elizabeth Fry Society was like, we have a position and we think you should apply for it. And it wasn't my first contact with Elizabeth Fry. Um, I had previous contact with Elizabeth Fry in custody. Um, I knew them because I did programming with them. And, uh, you know, they were like the only people, my family hadn't wanted nothing to do with me. They would, you know, when I was released, they would bring me clothing. Uh, they would support me. Um, they stepped up in ways that my family were unwilling to do. Yeah. What kind of services do they offer? We, so they offer a numerous service. We have transitional housing for people that are, uh, living a lifestyle of harm reduction. We have uh, safer housing, which is for individuals that identify as trans or that are farther along in their recovery. We have, um, weekly programming in the office for clients, for the community. We have programming at uh, the CC, which is a correctional center. We have court support. Mm-hmm. Um, we have system navigation for individuals to help support them along their journey in any way, shape, or form. And we have um, advocacy, and then um, our uh, executive director handles the systemic advocacy on, advocacy on the regional level. So there's a multitude of programs. We also have food bank um, programs to support individuals where they're at in their recovery or their so journey. You're using the word we, so you accepted the job. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, of course, I accepted the job. It was a really great um, opportunity. It was so interesting. This organization wanted me to work for them and they fully knew I was on bail. Mm-hmm. They knew that I was on bail for um, charges um, and they supported me through that whole dynamic. Uh, they also supported me through the long, arduous process of trying to reunify with my children. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was nothing that was left. There was no fear. Like I went into the the interview initially and I wasn't worried about them finding out um, that I was a criminal. They already knew. They met me in jail. Um, so that lifted a huge weight off my shoulders um, for me and all people who are fighting their way back from addiction and incarceration. The reality is the biggest barriers we face is the stigma that comes with a past like that. Um, you know, getting employment's really difficult. Uh, getting a place is extremely difficult. Um, when I first got my apartment, I had to tell the landlord that I was on bail and if he was okay with that. 
And he told me no. Wow. <laughs> and he said, you can't live in that building because the other tenants are lawyers. So, but they're like, I have this other building that I might consider renting to you. And I had to live beside a trap house in order to get an apartment. Um, so, you know, those barriers uh, cause a lot of... Um, a lot of people to fall like you know it's really hard to to break free from the turmoil of addiction and even like you have to have a credit score and you got to have a bank account and you have to have you know all these things that landlords look for and then you go to a job and you have a three-year five-year ten-year you know employment gap mm-hmm. and you're like well i was down you know down under for 10 years right <laughs> um it's a hard thing to explain away so the opportunity to live openly for me was, uh, that ended up being really great. I remember, um, you know, I was lucky enough to be on bail in the community while working for the community. And that supported me in my court case. When I went to go plead guilty to my last set of charges, my, my executive director sat beside me. Uh, and when the judge wanted to send me to prison, the crown attorney <laughs> fought in my favor um, they had a joint submission and, and the the judge has authority to override it, but they were arguing about it or not. Um, and that was really difficult for me because the judge wanted to sentence me to prison because of the words my dad had put in the Gladue report. <laughs> uh, and knowing that my dad had taken the opportunity to paint the picture that he did um, because we had a coinciding family court case happening, it was really difficult. It was difficult to accept the fact that my dad would rather see me in prison than have me as an adversary to getting my kids back mm-hmm. for him. Um, and it was really impactful. And basically what ended up happening that day uh, is the judge, uh, through much deliberation and negotiation, uh, settled on a conditional sentence order, which is a CSO uh, that I served in the community. Uh, so I had a conditional sentence order for a year. And I wasn't allowed out of my house after 10 o'clock. And I abided by it for 365 days. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm still on probation. I will be on probation until 2025. And in that time, you know, I've moved and had relationships and got a dog and worked on seeing my kids. You know, I don't get them uh, as much as I'd like, but I see them uh, every second weekend and I get video access. And, um, you know, we have been diligently fighting in the courts, my parents and I, for full custody of my children. Uh, And that has been a process that has been taking place for a very long time. And it's been extremely difficult. You know, I'm, I'm grateful to my parents for them stepping up when I couldn't. But I also am uh, traumatized by the fact that they won't step down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, all their evidence towards me is all based on the past. And I haven't been the past for over two years now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've had over two years of um, consistent uh, sobriety and two year, over two years of non-criminalization. Um, I recognize that my criminalization and my um, addiction and uh, go hand in hand. And, uh, you know, and I'm at the point now where I have a career. Um, Not only was I hired at Elizabeth Fry, uh, I was lucky enough to move into one of the co-lead system navigators. Um, And since then, I've also been promoted to court support navigator. So now I'm helping people through their own court cases and supporting people with their own bail plans and supporting clients and having their warrants rescinded. And I'm working with the crown attorneys that 
prosecuted me and, and, and lawyers that, you know, supported me through my own criminal cases. And, um, it's such a huge accomplishment to come full circle like that. All while on probation. Uh, yeah. All while I was serving, um, a conditional sentence order, which is over now and on probation and the opportunities that have come to me have just continued to flourish. You know, I, um, I've had a, a an opportunity to uh, work with the Lakehead University as a research advisor um, for one of the research studies that's taking place, and that took me to Vancouver as one of the presenters at the Issues of Substance conference um, just recently. And uh, you know, I've done so many amazing things, and because my lived experience is being taken seriously, and I'm very open about. Uh, my addiction and what it looked like and the, my part in it. And, you know, and I've really found that I, by speaking out uh, and opportunities like this today, even it takes my power back, mm-hmm. right? A lot of my addiction uh, was based on the fact that someone stole my voice as a teenager and spoke for me and di- dictated what my life was going to look like. And, uh, and now I'm taking it back. And now people are, if somebody's like, she's an addict, they'll be like, yeah, we all know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's been all over the news saying yeah, that yeah. shit. It takes away from the voice of others and it gives me the control back to to choose my life and what it's going to look like. Right. I really was traumatized by, uh, and you know, I hate to to focus on my stepmom, but her words as uh, um, against me as a teenager has impacted my whole life um, and has been a huge contributing factor to my addiction. And now her words carry no weight because I choose to speak openly and clearly for myself. I don't care if she tells everybody I'm a criminal. I tell everybody I'm a criminal all the time. (laughs) I don't care if the world knows that I'm an addict uh, or if she tells people that I'm an addict or I've done all these things. I have done all these things, but look at all that I've done now. Um, Let's focus on the, on the future. Mm-hmm. Let's not focus on your perception of the past. Yeah. Just listening to your story, I have probably 15 questions that I want to ask you <laughs> that um, because your story is just like unbelievable and has so many components and the components are all moving together in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was trying to figure out what was the reason why you were using so violently? Why was it that cocaine had such a strong hold on you because it was like in your mind it was use at all costs yeah right and i was one usually that's underpinned by something as you were talking about your stepmother i'm wondering if that was the major contributor to it because i was thinking maybe it was when you were molested in the foster home or or the lack of attachment to your mother, or or I'm trying to put all these theories together, but I'm curious what you think would be the major contributor to the hole that you were trying to fill. For me, uh, and this is something that I have like thought on significantly, and I can't speak for all people that struggle with substance use, but cocaine for me and crack for me, that when you inhale, to me was like pure love. Um, the feeling of like pure pleasure, pure love, nothing mattered. There was no amount of pain in the world that I could feel in that moment. And I think it carried a lifetime of hurt with me. And in those moments of use, 
even if it was only for three seconds, I felt nothing but just pure bliss. Uh, and it was something that I had been denied my whole life or I perceived to be denied. Love for me is, has been really difficult and elusive thing. And this substance made me believe that I was feeling it. And I think that's why I delved so deeply into it because it gave me something that I was searching for, but it also kept the demons away, kept the past away. I've heard other people say it, like when I think back about when I did use opiates, which was more than 10 years ago, um, it was like a warm hug. It's like a, like a warm, cozy place. And you're living in such a volatile, violent, cold, dark world that those moments, you know, are very, um, like, you know, you're just pulled in and you're absorbed into it and, uh, at all costs. And you're absolutely right. Like I was, and I've said it time and time again, I just wanted to get high Mm -hmm. and I wanted to push away the darkness. There's no way to describe smoking crack unless you did. And I think that's why it's so, um, addictive. Nothing matters in that moment. You Mm -hmm. just feel like 100% good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another question I had is what did you think Places like the Elizabeth Fry Society, is that what it's called? Yeah. Elizabeth Fry Society. What do you think they saw in you that made them pursue you and or, or pace? What is it that they saw in you so much so that they pursued you and wanted to add you to their team regardless of your history? For pace, I stalked them. I think I dropped off like six resumes. <laughs> but uh, for the Elizabeth Fry Society, uh, NWO, um, they, I had a, a pre-existing relationship for them and with them, and I think they just realized like my dedication to hard work. I worked really hard, um, and you know they, you know some of the members of the team had seen me in custody, and and I thrived at Pace. I was really good. They were looking for a system navigator, and I, my position at Pace wasn't a system navigator, but I was moving towards acting like one. Um, not only was I providing, uh, I was supporting clients in my actual job, but I was trying to find ways to connect them to services, provide them with additional supports that were outside of my job. And that's how like pace, I mean, pardon me, Elizabeth Fry was aware of that. Um, And they were looking for somebody with lived experience from the community, possibly a past client who um, would fill that role. And I I just did really well. And uh, the organizations are very close. So they were seeing me in action. Uh, And, you know, it ended up being an an amazing um, opportunity. And just to expand, like the opportunity that I got from it like lifted up my self-esteem. Employment was a huge, huge motivator for me. I felt good about myself. I was like, look, I'm working, you know, I have a place and, uh, you know, and every time that I accomplish a new feat with my career, it takes me away from that old image of me. Mm-hmm. And I'm creating a foundation of a new image. And that's only possible with opportunity. Those opportunities have to come from somewhere. Um, and I was very lucky. Not a lot of people got, you know, would have gotten, will get the same opportunities I had. Um, and for those people, I feel sad. Mm-hmm. What's your biggest fear right now? Um, my biggest fear? Well, I'm always fearful of a relapse. My biggest fear would be not, say, getting my kids back, but I know that that would be, or losing my kids would be like tied directly to a relapse. So, you know, my biggest fear is always around my children, but I recognize that um, whatever fears I have with my children would lay at the feet of a relapse. So, uh, you know, I work diligently to 
ensure my recovery. You know, I work a 12 step program. I go, I've had multiple, multiple, um, uh, sessions with a therapist. Um, I've done a lot of self-reflection, you know, I participate. I'm mindful of the company I keep. I'm mindful of decisions that I make. And I also try to regulate my emotions and be aware of myself and what my triggers are. Um, and that's been a learning process. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of like rapid firing the question. That's okay. <laughs> um, your relationship has the custody battle uh, negatively impacted your relationship with your parent, your dad, and your stepmother? Uh, absolutely. It's cordial. Our communication um, is cordial when we're talking about the kids and stuff. Um, but at this point, like our, our relationship was so. Um, was wounded long before a custody battle ever happened. Um, and you know, uh, I have a compassion to understand that, um, if the situation was reversed, I would do every, anything I could to keep my kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't, I don't discount them for that. It still sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, um, you know, for me, the truth is bad enough. We don't need to embellish. There's no, there's no need to say, say worse. <laughs> the truth sucks, but, um, I do, I understand they, they're, they're operating from a place of fear. They're, they have a fear, a, a reasonable fear, um, because, uh, you know, my kids could be deeply impacted by if I had another relapse. So I have compassion for their position. Um, I, and I understand the ruthlessness, um, to a degree, um, uh, but like beyond, to be honest, if my kids weren't involved, I wouldn't talk to them. I wouldn't have a relationship with them. They're a part of, for me, they're the toxicity, mm-hmm. uh, for me, um, you know, that, you know, uh, I've worked really hard to be accountable for who and what I am. And I'm not really looking to deal with people who aren't willing to take accountability for themselves or their actions. Mm-hmm. I'm always impressed with people who have gone through the recovery, the 12 step program, because you, you guys come back with so much insight. I've never done it. I've never looked into it. My introduction to it has just been from these interviews and the insight that people who have gone through that program have on themselves is remarkable. The ability that you have to identify the feelings that you have and properly place them, like what you just said about your your, your step-parents and your dad that as frustrating it is, it is, as it is to deal with them in the position that they're in right now fighting over your kids, you still have some compassion for their position. And that is just like mind-blowing because it's so hard to see that side of it because they're actually against you in court, right? They're, they're opposing you. So your insight is unbelievable. And I don't know how much of it is because of this the recovery and 12 step program, but like, my God, it's like, it's amazing. What of your mother? My mom and I uh, have a, we still talk. So there was a long period of time that we didn't talk um, for, there was a, without getting into too much information, but there was an incident that took place when I, when I was approximately 17. Uh, and uh, so I didn't talk to her for, I don't know, 10 years or so. We don't see each other very often. She lives um, in Northern Manitoba. She has been my biggest supporter and it's always surprised me. Like, not that I expect less, but like, you know, the woman who 
has been through so much herself and struggled with her own parenting has been like my number one supporter. She would drive across the country for me (laughs) if Mm -hmm. need be. Um, I can't even get my dad to drive across town. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And that that realization, you know, and she was, I always made her like, uh, you know, I always looked harshly upon um, some of the things that happened in my childhood, but like, you know, she calls me and we talk and I've been to her, uh, you know, I've been out to her farm and stuff. And, um, I know that she would do anything to support me. And it's such to me, it's so interesting to see. And then I have my dad and my stepmom who are like literally in the same town as me. And I can't, you know, I can't get my dad to call me. I can't get my parents to come see me. And I just think it shows such a discrepancy in the traditional views I've had of my mother and the traditional views I've had of my father and or long-standing views I should say that I've had of of the parental figures in my life and uh, I don't know if like my relationship with my mom continues to grow but there's always going to be um, a little bit of apprehension uh, at times but I know that instinctively she she means well um you know i equate to her some of the things that have happened in the past to be specifically due to things that are beyond her control or her inability to cope where i've seen like some of the stuff that have been really impactful for me from my stepmom i'm just like i wonder where that comes from mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah you know there's an excuse for my mom's behavior my stepmom doesn't have one right You're a very skilled communicator. While other people were in class studying and reading and writing essays and, you know, lit reviews and whatnot, you were busy doing what you were doing in your former life. How did you become such a skilled communicator? Advocating for myself. um, I've learned, you know, I... It's so interesting when you ask that because, you know, I equate a lot of the stuff to my stepmom, negative stuff, but um, my journey through with her and my dad and other individuals has had some positive impacts as well. Um, I learned that um, freaking out and screaming and yelling will get me nowhere. There was no amount of pleading that I could to kind of break through some of those barriers. Uh, and I, ha- I had to, you know, suffer and learn that the best way to move forward uh, was to have a clear, concise voice. Mm-hmm. Um, the best things that have been afforded to me is because of my ability to advocate for myself and others. Uh, and you can't do that raging from behind cell bars. Mm-hmm. Nobody will listen to you. It doesn't matter how loud you are. Nobody can hear you. Um, I found that, um, you know, being articulate and coming with, a, you know, set points uh, and uh, set ideas and having an open conversation is um, when I can win people over the most for myself and others. Um, I'm not always successful, but I try to put my best foot forward to ensure the, my success and the success of people that are also struggling. Yeah, you probably see the look on my face right now. It's kind of perplexed. You're you're such an anomaly. Like the things that you've, uh, given your history, the things that you've accomplished and the way that you speak and the way that you carry yourself is mind-boggling to me because someone who did, this is me putting on my judgmental self, someone who did the things you did and lived the life you lived sh- should not be able to communicate um, and carry a point as sharply as you do right now. And I'm just like, 
blown away by it. So congratulations Thank to you, you for however you got to this point, because it is absolutely impressive. Two more questions for you. I could sit here all night and ask you so many questions because you are a phenomenal, incredible individual. Two more questions, though, because people have other things they need to do with their day. <laughs> what goals are you working towards right now? Like, what do you have your sights locked? Because I know the, the dark and the past still is trying to pull you back and you've got to be laser focused on a goal. And, um, and I'm curious what, what you're aiming towards right now. Um, I always have, even in active addiction, even in active recovery, I have a plan A, B, C, and D, um, because I know that life doesn't work out the way that we intend to. Um, right now, um, I'm in a holding pattern because I don't know what's going to happen with my children. Um, I'm hoping to regain full custody, but there is a very good chance that might not happen. And what does my life look like beyond that? Um, you know, if my uh, kids are with me. I'm limited in some of the things that I can do career-wise. Uh, if my kids are only with me part-time, um, you know, I'm limited in, I couldn't say consider relocating because I would have to stay in the city that my children are in. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm always kind of bouncing ideas, but right now working um, in the court support program has really opened up my eyes. And I'm like, now I'm like daydreaming a little bit. I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if I was a lawyer? <laughs> wouldn't that mess with people? And then, you know, but I'm also being, you know, honest with myself and going, is that something I'd be capable of doing? Um, I do have some really great strengths, but I have some educational weaknesses as well. And, um, and I'm like, but maybe there's a, a career out there for me that kind of falls in the middle. And then I'm like, maybe I want to go to school and go take a social justice program or something like that. So I know that I want to further my career. And I also know that I want to show people what is possible. Um, I wish that I could kind of give you guys an idea, but I have arrest photos. I'm so sick. I'm like so frail. I'm like 109 pounds, I'm five foot 11. So you can imagine like Skeletor and, um, you know, and that's one of the re other reasons that I love talking out and speaking out. Like when I run into police officers and they see me, I want them to know like change is possible. Mm -hmm. When I run into lawyers that have helped me with my criminal cases, I want them to see change is possible. When I run into my family members who have talked me down and said, I'm just this and I'm just that, I want them to see that change is possible. I am not what you, f what you think I am. I am so much more. I'm more than an addict and I'm more than a criminal. And so for me, I'm like, how far can I take this? Mm -hmm. You know, how, how much change can I bring to myself and my community? Uh, and what perceptions can I change? Mm -hmm. Unreal. I did say I had two more questions, but I'll ask you two more right now. That's fine. <laughs> I always ask people, why didn't you quit? But you've kind of alluded to, you didn't want your stepmother to be right. And you keep fighting for your kids. Those are the two big things that I that mm -hmm. I keep hearing. Am I missing anything out of that equation? I think, uh, you know, I think that you're absolutely right. And it's just like, for me, like not quitting, there's so many layers to it, right? It's like proving my family wrong, but it's also about proving me right. Yes, my family, like part of it is, you know, an animosity or an anger towards my family that it kind of fuels me, but I recognize that's a, not a good place to base a recovery. For me, I want to live for myself. Um, I want to 
be the person I know that I can be. I never was like, I'm going to be an addict. You know, that was not like I got way laid off my course. Right. And, um, now I'm trying to integrate my past with my future in a positive way. And so, you know, it's just about prevailing for myself and proving myself right. I'm not trying to prove the world wrong mm-hmm. really anymore. That fueled me. That pushed me through part of my recovery and it was helpful. But now I'm trying to prove me right. That's right. more important. Right. Okay. Last question. Okay. So you're in the back of the cop car after this massive raid and you are about to take that hit of crack cocaine, right? Yes. In your brain, you're going to jail for a long time. You, yeah. you, you probably didn't know that they were just going to give you a, uh, let you off. Yeah. But in your mind, I, I think at that point you probably felt up to your eyes in S H I T. If you could go back in time to that moment and say something to Alicia in the back of that cop car, taking a hit of, of a crack cocaine, which still blows my mind. Um, what would you say to that person? I'm not sure to be, I have to be honest. I don't know what I could have said to myself in that moment that would have really penetrated. Um, but you know, I think the, the best thing I can come up with is there's more than the pipe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) the simplest thing like you know like how ludicrous of it it was for me to get high in a cop car like I got away with it I shook the whole way but if I could really go back and tell myself and be like you're right in your inside you're more than this you are more than this and because I always instinctively deep down believed that I was more than my addiction but I was having a really hard time seeing that in the depths of it Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, I would whisper in my ear that you are more the end addiction. You just need the opportunity to kind of set yourself free. And it's true. Like I, you know, I have excelled beyond my wildest dreams post my incarceration and um, to the surprise of everyone around me, but not to the surprise of me. Mm-hmm. Kind of just knew you could always do it. eh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this is a good place to cut it. I am just still blown away and floored by the person that I'm looking at right now because the story that I heard, I'm having a hard time uh, superimposing that over you because you are so sharp and and you're beaming confidence. And what's cool about the way you tell your story, you're not timid about it. You're very matter of fact and very, very I like the openness and the courage that you you display when you tell your story. It's phenomenal the path you've taken and where where the journey has taken you to. Thank you so much. Um, I hope in the future our paths cross again because just in the last two hours, I've learned so much about myself in your story. Because though I've never struggled the way you've struggled, I can definitely superimpose the mentality that you've had and the approach that you had to your struggles onto my little insignificant struggles thank you so much alicia do you have any parting words for anybody listening that might benefit from hearing what you have to say honestly um if i can leave anything it's that no one is lost Mm -hmm. right i was the worst of the worst and uh, i'm not saying that every person can come back from or will come back from addiction but every person can Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what's important to remember that, um, you know, a family member or a friend or yourself, there is hope. 
Um, but it takes a lot of small steps to make big ones. Right. Beautifully said. Thank you so much. I wish you the best. I wish I wish the best for your kids. I wish the best for you and your career and your your path forward. And I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah. Take care.